Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Humans of Magic, the show that gets up deep and super personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I am your host, James Sue. I am extremely unreasonably excited to bring to you episode 109 with Melissa DeTora. Melissa is a senior game designer at Wizards of the Coast. She currently leads the MTG casual play design team. And she is the first woman to ever top eight a Magic Pro Tour. What I also love about Melissa in this interview is her honesty and candidness. She's candid about her own growth, her views on Magic, and even views on cards and mechanics that didn't quite work out. What I found super awesome in this interview is just Melissa's complete passion for the game. She's got an extreme passion for self-improvement and works hard at a lot of things, including one of her hobbies. It really shines through. Another takeaway I think is really good to have as reminders to us as Magic players is that game design is really freaking hard. Talking about game design is possibly even harder, but Melissa does it all here. I love having these long conversations that take a little bit of time to develop and they show a different side of the person that you don't usually see on the internet or on their Twitter account. After the interview, Melissa told me that I had asked her some questions that she had never been asked before in a public setting, never been asked. So this is a fun interview. This is something. This is one of those interviews that really shines a light into who Melissa is as a person and what she does, what she's passionate about. And yeah, that's that's the intro. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Melissa. I would love to get your support on Humans of Magic, the project. So if you have not had the chance, please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Both accounts can be found at Humans of Magic, one word. We also have a new Patreon, patreon.com slash humans of magic. If you want to join our exclusive Discord community, you want me to help review your podcast or content, happy to do that through the Discord and the Patreon. I have switched to a weekly release format. So Humans of Magic is always going to be free, it's always going to be a labor of love, but the Patreon is going to go a long way to cover the additional intensity of the workload. And I'm really happy to do weekly episodes. I want to get more Humans of Magic content out, so your support is always appreciated. The phenomenal music you hear in this episode and every episode of Humans of Magic is supplied by Kupla. That's spelled K-U-P-L-A. Kupla is an absolutely fantastic musician he's a magic player and you can find all of his music on all the streaming platforms including spotify and soundcloud definitely give him a follow on twitter as well kupla sound and uh tell him humans and magic said hi melissa how are you doing today i'm doing great how about you I'm doing excellent. I'm so happy that you took the time out of your busy schedule working at Wizards of the Coast to come and talk to me. The first question I have actually is, I visited Wizards of the Coast a few years ago. This is like pre-pandemic. Is that large dragon still there? Because I still remember taking a photo with you with that large dragon. You probably don't remember this. but I do remember. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, the large dragon is still there. Um, the office is a little bit different now post-COVID. Like, 
random people can't just walk in and ask to take pictures with the dragon anymore. Um, All everything right. is okay. like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, everything is locked down. You have to go to security and you have to like be there for a reason. Like, Hey, I'm here to visit this person, you know, and yeah. they have to like escort you up there and have you see the dragon that way. But like in the past, it was just kind of like, Hey, I'm a big magic fan. Can I see the dragon? And then you can just go up there. Like the fourth floor where the dragon is, it used to be accessible to everybody. And that's actually where security used to be the fourth floor. But that is not the case anymore. Now you have to like actually like go to the first floor and be like, "Hey, uh, I'm here to see." I X I request to see Mr. Dragon, or I request to see yeah. Mr. and Mrs. All right, so I guess I made it because that time I think I just I just said I want to see the dragon, and or I wanted to see somebody, and it just kind of happened. It was uh, sounds like you've really uh, the company's really stepped up the measures, right? <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. I think it's just because like in the past when you were there. Um, there were other people who worked in the building, non-wizards, like there were other businesses. And um, as wizards has grown, now it's just wizards and also a daycare, which is not, has no affiliation with wizards or anything, but like people send their kids there. And there's a cafe, but anyway, uh, it's mostly just wizards employees these days, so. I do remember the cafe. Has the cafe changed at all? Has it expanded? Has it shrunk? Yeah, it actually has. It got completely renovated during COVID and it's actually like, a really awesome cafe these days they like updated their menu they updated like all of like you know the seating and everything and it serves our building and the building next door which is just another office building does that mean that a lot of employees maybe yourself like you'll just eat there now because it's convenient because i do remember like visiting or visiting seattle and like a lot of employees prefer to go out for lunch or go out for a meal it sounds like there's a good option there just just stay there now. yeah i would say i do eat there a lot more now in the past I would be like, hmm, I don't have time to go out to eat for lunch. I guess I have to go to this cafe. Oh, I'm kind of bummed. But now, like, the cafe is totally serviceable. It's like the food is actually pretty good. So I do go there a lot more often. And, like, like not a lot of us work in the office as much as before COVID, obviously, when everybody sure. did. Um, yeah. But, like, the business seems to uh, be good because the other office next door, like, that is the cafe is usually packed with those employees. Mm -hmm. So seems to be doing fine. So I guess there's an inside baseball question, which is how often do people generally work in the office? Is it like you go once or twice a week or how does that, what yeah, does that depends. typically be? Mm -hmm. it, it depends on the team. Um, every team, every department is different. Uh, some people go in every day. Uh, some people don't go in at all. Um, maybe once a week or zero times a week, depending on what you do. Like, like I would imagine people who like work in, in tech, like maybe arena folks, don't go in very often because they can primarily do their jobs from home. But people who work on magic game design, we can do our jobs from home sometimes, but like being in the office with people is like a lot more effective for us. So we're in the office three days a week, um, minimum and sometimes more. Um, but again, it really depends on the team, like competitive play design, which is the team that I used to be on. They're in the office every day. Uh, my team, we're in the office three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and we work Monday and Friday from home. And that's been just really good for us. Like it, it, it works really well for our team. And uh, a lot of us enjoy the, hey, we don't have to commute today. You know, like that kind yeah. of stuff is just really valuable. Commuting time is definitely a killer. Yeah, I mean, that that's great. So maybe we'll just start off by you telling me like, I mean, at this point, anyone listening to this podcast kind of knows who you are. But I mean, I want to get into the Watsi staff, hashtag Watsi staff, Watsi life kind of thing. So maybe tell me sure. how long you've been working at 
Wizards of the Coast and the different teams you've been part of. You just mentioned the one before and the one now, but give right. me a rundown on your yeah. career, basically. Yeah. Okay, so my career at Wizards is a little complicated. I've been there for a total of seven and a half years, but I was a contractor for some of those years. So I've only been a full-time employee of Wizards for a little bit over five years now. Um, I started in January of 2015 as a contractor on the development team. Uh, the development team is... That's the term we use to describe game balance. So I worked on game balance, which is just like tweaking numbers, tweaking designs to make magic more fun and, uh, you know, fixing cards that might be problematic, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I started doing that, was a contractor for about a year. When the contract was over, they decided to not hire me. Um, and so then I left the company. Um, and... Uh, Washington has laws where if you are a contractor of a company, you can't go back for another six months. You have to take a forced six-month break. So I did that, and then after the six months was up, I went back again for another contract. Um, but uh, that was a time where Wizards was kind of like changing, restructuring um, their department uh, for game design. Um, so when I went back, there was no more development team. Like, big surprise. Was, I was actually very shocked. Everybody was combined into one team, just called the design team. But in that team, people had different roles. So my role as a contractor of that team was still on game balance. Um, so I think my official title was something along the lines of playtesting contractor or something. I don't really remember. Okay, um, but you but were a game balancer. That's what Yes, you were. I, I was a game balance person, but the team was just called something different. It was a little bit weird. And, um, you know, so I did that for a little bit and then... Um, eventually the like leadership was like, Hey, we know what we're going to do. We're going to make a team called the play design team. Um, and like a reason for changing the structure was mostly because uh, we wanted the teams to like be more collaborative with each other. We wanted everybody to work on the different stages of design. Um, in the past, it was just like, Hey, design does their thing. Okay. We're all done. All right. Now development, you go do your thing. Um, and it was a lot less collaborative and there were a lot of like pitfalls with that structure more siloed basically right yeah it was more siloed there was a little bit of communication but there was also a lot of like hey us as game balancers we can't really balance this mechanic in a way that'll be satisfying or acceptable for competitive constructed we have to just make a new mechanic you know and when you only have certain time to work on the set that can be a problem so so anyway they decided to restructure and um, have different uh, stages, different stages of uh, game design. So we have exploratory design, where it's like the initial um, stages where you're just kind of uh, figuring out what is the world we're on? You know, what's like the story? Who are the main characters? What mechanics fit in that world? That kind of stuff. And then you have vision design, which is like a little bit like exploratory design, but like, you know, now you know, like, what is the setting and... Uh, and basically they're kind of fleshing out like the mechanics and um, important pieces uh, for the set. And then set design is where all the card design actually happens. So that's where you flesh out your limited color pairs and actually design like the planeswalkers and the legendary characters. And you actually like design cards, uh, design all the commons and uncommons, that kind of thing. And then play design, which is a team that um, checks in every step of the way but probably does most of their work during the set design period. And that's where the game balance happens. But like more importantly, um, they work on like just 
developing the standard format and just making it as fun as possible, like like figuring out, hey, what are the, the fun decks that, that we want to push? Uh, what are the cards that aren't so fun? Um, well, we should probably either redesign those or make them weaker or whatever. So yeah, that's, that's about that, I think. So the balancing aspect of what you have been doing really it's carried over to this because that that balance is constantly something that the play design team has to look at based on what you said yes yeah we are just always i don't really know how to how to word that well there are levers and you figure out like i pull this one i i manipulate this one i influence this this thing and just kind of i don't know the right analogy but it sounds like it's yeah. kind of like making the machine go or like greasing the wheels yeah, a certain yeah. way. Yeah, one of the terms we use to describe that is knobs, where it's like we're twisting little knobs uh, of... You're yeah. right. I just remember I talked to Carmen Handy and she said knobs. Oh, okay. So it's like, yeah, knobs it's, it's like is, you guys all have the same yeah, terminology. Yeah, knobs right? is a word that, that we use a lot. Like the more knobs a card has, the easier it is to work on usually. You know, like if a card has like a bunch of text and power and toughness and mana cost and some other numbers... There's a lot you can do with it, right? But a card like uh, like Lightning Bolt, there's not really so much you can do with it. You know, it has a mana cost, it has an, an amount of damage, um, and it has instant or sorcery. And the only other real knob is what does it hit? Any target, creature, or player, that kind of thing. So, like, very few knobs on that. You know, there's only so many iterations of Lightning Bolt that you can do, right? For sure. So tell me about moving from play design to casual play design. Because just on the outside, I see Melissa Detora and I'm like, Melissa is someone who's obviously known in Magic for being an ultra spike, or mm -hmm. there was a phase in your life where that was definitely the case. And you talk about fun, which is kind of like, I mean, fun has a different context, right? So I'm sure that working as a designer at Wizards, you already have a more well-rounded view, but just tell me how you go from play design to casual play design, what does it actually mean? And how do you define the word casual? That's a big loaded term. All right. First, I'll just uh, start by saying uh, the perception of me is that I'm like a super spike, but I've actually done pretty much everything you can do in magic. Like I was a judge for a very long time um, mm -hmm. just because I thought the rules were super interesting and um Basically, like, I wanted to be involved in Magic in any way that I could. So if I was ever qualified for a Pro Tour, that means I couldn't play in the PTQ. But I still wanted to be involved in the PTQ. So what could I do to be involved in the PTQ? Well, I can just become a judge, right? So that was my main motivation for, for becoming a, it's a judge. It's more about, like, immersing yourself fully in different ways. Yeah. yeah, but I also really liked judging, too. Like, I thought judging was, like, very, like, challenging. You know, you uh, like you have to go up to a table and you have to, like, evaluate a situation is more than just rules you also have to evaluate like player intention and like kind of figure out like you know is somebody trying to get the other player you know a lot of it was rules question but there was also a lot of like really interesting like what is actually going on here you know so I was a judge for a very long time I was a, a level two before I went to wizards I was a level one for like I don't know eight or so years and then um, somebody was like, you should just be level two. You've been doing this for too long. So I'm like, fine, I'll just take the level two test. <laughs> so I was a level two. Um, and I also uh, worked at game stores. So I interacted with casual players a decent amount. And I also taught people how to play Magic a decent amount. Like I even uh, 
taught magic at conventions. So I taught magic at PAX or at Gen Con. Um, so I was, like, also involved with teaching new players. So I kind of could really, like, understand how do players learn the game. Yeah, so long story short, I've done a lot of stuff in Magic. So, like, even though I, when people think about me, they're like, oh, you know, Super Spike Pro Tour player. But I've actually just done a lot of different roles in Magic, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, so that's that part of the story. All right, next is how did I get involved in casual play design? Um, so, this team was a long time coming. Um, it started because we have been adding more products that we make over time, you know? Like, before, we used to make one commander deck per year, and then now we make commander decks for every set. Um, so that's just a lot more, you know? So we just need more resources for that. Um, additionally, we now do um, exclusive uh, eternal format legal cards in set boosters. So more new stuff. We do universes beyond now, so that's even more new stuff. Um, so we needed more resources in general And also, we didn't really have a good process uh, for testing these commander cards. Like, formerly the process was just people on the commander team for that specific product would just play test with their cards. Sometimes they would, like, build decks in Commander Constructed. Um, Sometimes they would just play test the decks uh, amongst each other. Um, But the process for testing all of these new cards we're making was not very good. So we needed to come up with a new process for testing these cards. Um... So that was mostly how the team was formed. And then how did I get to be on the team? Um, so during COVID, uh, when we were all locked down, uh, the commander designers were struggling with playtesting because uh, we didn't really have a good way to play remotely. You know, um, like playing multiplayer remotely was very hard for them. So they were like, they really had this hole of like, hey, uh, we are not really uh, playtesting as much or as efficiently as we like, and we need some help. You know, um, and at the time I happened to live with three other Wizards employees in the same house. So since we're three Wizards employees, four of us uh, total uh, living in the same house, um, we were like, hey, we should playtest Commander. So mm-hmm. we just started playtesting Commander during COVID, you know. So so even though we all had other jobs at Wizards doing other things, we were all playtesting Commander as well. You That's know? just how much you love magic, right? <laughs> yeah, I and like the so the other employees of uh, of wizards in my house they didn't work on magic they worked on various other things like we had somebody who worked on Magic Online um, developer somebody oh. who worked uh, on the WPN team mm-hmm. um, somebody who worked on like in like customer service roles so like people were doing different things and they were really excited to play test commander like they were like yes this is awesome we just want to do this all day so they loved it so we just kind of did that as like a side thing. And then as I was playing these commander sets, um, I was like thinking that these sets, you know, they're designed by people who are not game balancers. You know, they're they're designed by commander designers, you know. And um, I took it upon myself to just go through all of their files and just give tons of detailed feedback about um, their designs from like a more of like a balanced perspective. Like just like, how will this play in a typical game of you know, constructed commander or like this looks too strong because of this and that reason, you know? So I just like gave all this feedback and, um, they were like, okay, um, yeah, you should probably work on commander. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do feel you about start, working right? on, on commander, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and since they were looking to start this team anyway, 
um, they thought that I would be a good candidate to lead the team. So here I am leading the casual play design team. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's like the old adage, like just do the job that you you want, right? Just just you even before it's official, you just you just immerse yeah. yourself in it, right? And like I I don't know, don't get me wrong, like I really enjoyed working on the competitive play design team. It was just super fun. I think I just like playing magic and just thinking about magic in terms of game balance. I just really enjoy it. So like I enjoy this as well. I enjoy both. Um, so anyway, like was it an easy transition? Uh, yeah, I would say probably like because like. Like, the role is, like, more of a leadership role, so it's a lot harder, you know? Like, I have to, like, weigh in all of these different people's opinions and, like, uh, basically, like, I'm a, I am somebody who can make a final decision about what we're going to do to a card. So it's a lot more pressure. It's still really fun, though, and I enjoy it a lot. So it's been, it's been a really good experience. And, like, you know, I've been doing competitive play design for my whole time that I was there, which how many years did I say? It was probably, like, six or so years, seven um, or something. Um, our team, Casual Play Design, started in November of uh, of last year, so we've only been around for about seven months now. Right. I think that's really cool. Is that because I think what you have done before in Magic allows you to apply a certain framework or method, methodology or process to this other supposedly different thing. But at at the risk of generalizing, at the end of the day, it's still Magic cards. So it's like you still balance it a certain way you still look at evaluate in a certain way you still top down design in a certain way you still right so i think i think yeah. there's a lot of carryover it sounds like yeah it, it is still magic cards a lot of the things carry over but commander is a lot different like you have to really look at, at, at the cards in a different way like there's a table of four players you know so cards are just going to play out a lot differently in a 1v1 game than in a four player game and also, like, power level is very strange because Commander has cards like Mana Crypt and Soul Ring and Food Chain and Doubling Season and, you know, like, a lot of power level outliers that we can't really design around. Like, they already exist and, you know, that's not going to change. They exist. So, like, we really have to think about it in terms of, like, is this card fun in an average table of a four-player game, you know? Um... Is this card, like, maybe this card is broken with the doubling season. Is this card fun if there's no doubling season in play, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's just a lot different than 1v1, where in 1v1, there are lines of, like, once the card hits this line, it is too strong for standard. You know, that doesn't right. really exist in Commander, because right. it's hard to be too strong in Commander when Commander already has these, like, power level outliers of the past, you know? Yeah, there are staples like Sol Ring that, are here to stay it's kind of like uh you know people have said it's it's the it's like brainstorm and legacy like it's not going to go away so you have to take these things into consideration uh, and, and the four and the four player dynamic which is absolutely like uh, there's a lot more variance with with that for sure so what about the term casual going back to that is that is that just saying it's synonymous with a commander product or what, what, what does it mean to have like a casual play design label? I think the majority of magic players are casual players. Um, they play magic at the kitchen table. Uh, they might only buy like, you know, a couple packs every set and just add those cards to their decks, you know? So they're playing at a much different level than a competitive player who like knows every card and, 
you know, is trying to optimize winning and stuff. Like, I think the average player just kind of plays with their friends just kind of like socially. So more of like a social game. Is casual play design syn synonymous with Commander? Um, we do work on a lot of Commander and primarily we work on Commander. Uh, but we also work on things like new player products. Um, mm -hmm. So any new player product like Jumpstart or Game Night 3, which was recently announced, would be our team. So any anything that is a new player thing. Um, another example would be the Arena new player decks that you right. get. You know, you, you start your Arena account, you get these 10 decks or 20 mm -hmm. decks, I'm not really sure, but um, mm -hmm. our team will work on those. Uh, we also keep casual 1v1 constructed in mind as well. Um, mm -hmm. Like, a lot of people do play Commander at their kitchen tables, but, like, some people are just like... Hey, uh, I just started playing. I have I bought this booster box. I'm gonna build a sixty card deck with it, you know. So um, we want to make cards that are fun for those tables as well. Yeah. So it sounds like it's people that are real. It's just I bought a Magic starter deck. Let's let's play. There's a huge demographic for that. Or maybe put it another way, like people that maybe have no intentions ever of going to an FNM or even a Command Fest. They're just playing at home, right, with their their friend or whomever, it sounds like. A surprising amount of players just, like, don't interact with magic social media. You know, like, they don't know who the magic designers are or they right. don't know who are the popular content creators. They or... don't know who Saffron Olive is or something. Yeah. Sure, yeah. But, like, more importantly, um, they don't know who the rules committee is, you know. And, like, mm. um, a lot of commander players... Um, they follow the rules committee, you know, and like, you know, they read the articles and they mm -hmm. follow like the ban list and stuff. Uh, um, but I think like it's only like a small fraction who actually knows um, who they are and uh, and like and what they do. I think a lot of them just assume that like Wizards manages the ban list, you know, and we don't. The rules committee does that. Right. So this is a good, good transition because I was going to ask you, like, in terms of the commander community, how... Is there a bridge from your team to the rules committee or the the advisory group? Like, how does that work? Because kind of a interesting thing I've found from talking to people from those groups is that they have a lot of views about what commanders should and shouldn't be. And obviously, your team has views about what. Let's just let's just zoom in on commander, right? Because it's popular. Yeah. Your team has views on what commander should and shouldn't be. So. What is that dynamic like, and do you have a direct link to those teams? Yeah, um, so we interact with those teams quite a bit. Uh, so the idea is Wizards makes the content, and the Magic Rules Committee makes the rules. And the Commander Advisory Group, I guess, uh, they work with the Rules Committee directly, and like mostly they just give feedback to them of like what the Rules Committee should do with the rules and that kind of thing. Um, so the rules committee, they give us tons of feedback about stuff, you know, stuff that's currently in design. Like Sheldon Mennery even worked on one of the products one time. Uh, he worked on the Strixhaven Commander decks. One of our uh, team members, Elizabeth Rice, is actually on the Commander Advisory Group. Um, and she acts as like a liaison between um, the rules committee, uh, both the Commander Advisory Group and our team. Like she gets feedback from them for every set and she just brings the feedback back to us and we read it and like go through it and we, and we learn a lot from it. Um, so we do interact with the community quite a bit as well. Like, like I'm on Twitter, um, even though I'm not super active on Twitter, I don't tweet a lot of things. I do read a lot of things though. Mm. Like I read a lot of feedback. I read, I follow most of the people on the commander advisory group and the rules committee and read what they say a lot. 
I read Reddit a lot. I think a lot of us on the team do as well. So we are reading feedback and listening to you guys all the time. And we also want to design cards for everybody, not just the enfranchised community. We want to design cards for like the kitchen table player, the players who only buy a few packs a set, or like the players who maybe only buy the pre-cons and want to upgrade. You know, so there are like plenty of players out there who don't interact with the rules committee and don't follow them, and we want to cater to those players as well. One piece of feedback that like we get constantly is we're making too many cards with treasure, and um, I think they're right. Like we are, we have been making too many cards with treasure, and the more treasure cards you add to the format, the more fast mana people have. Like the faster games end, and like it's less fun for a lot of people to have that like fast gameplay where one player just has a bunch of treasure, just gets a huge advantage, and you can't really come back. So uh, we are mindful of that, and like we are making less treasure cards, or at least less treasure cards that would be like ubiquitous in Commander. So Dockside Extortionist um, was a pretty big mistake for us. Um, it is obviously too powerful. People complain about it all the time. And yeah, they're right. Um, our goal is to not make those types of cards anymore. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to stop making treasure cards. We are still going to make them, but we are going to mind be mindful of their power level. Got it. Any other examples that come to mind? Um, probably. That's the challenge of being a designer. I guess you, you've experienced so much even in a week that it's like, how do you even generalize it, right? Or extrapolate it? Yeah, like fast mana is another one. So I was somebody who was responsible for Arcane Signet. And this was during a time uh, when I didn't know very much about Commander. And my task was to design four awesome Brawl decks. And I was somebody who really liked playing Brawl, and I still do. I play on Arena all the time. It's sweet. And, uh, you know, and I had a lot of goals um, and restrictions for these Brawl new cards, right? I had to make sure that they were not too powerful and standard. And I had to make sure they were really fun in Brawl you know, and like what the format needed, you know, and the format needed a card like Arcane Signet. It needed strong mana fixing. Um, Brawl didn't really have strong mana fixing, so it was very difficult to play a three-color deck when you're limited to only two years worth of cards. So Brawl needed Arcane Signet, you know, and I thought that, hey, Arcane Signet is really cool for commander players too. They can play that. They'll be happy. But I didn't realize that it would be like the strongest two-mana rock ever printed. I just thought it would be like a two-mana rock. They're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. But, um, And a lot of them do love it, but a lot of them are like, oh no, now my decks have to have one soul ring, one arcane signet. Please don't do this again. So uh, the point here is uh, we don't want to make cards that are ubiquitous and like a must play in every commander deck the way that soul ring and arcane signet are. So we are trying our best to avoid ubiquity. Melissa, you have to understand that I'm looking at this as an outsider. Everything you've described to me right now, if I'm being honest, just sounds like an impossible task. Like it just sounds like <laughs> I print something. I mean, how do I control who likes it, who doesn't like it? And once it's there, it's in the canon and I'm designing for commander. I'm also not designing for commander. I'm designing for the kitchen table player. Like I guess you're really deep in it, but to me, it just sounds like it's, it's, it's impossible. 
it is actually really, really hard. I wouldn't say it's impossible because we make a lot of magic sets, a lot of magic cards, that but it's true. really hard. Like magic's still rocking, so that's not. Yeah, like that's good. I, I do feel like every day I go home and I'm just like, wow, what a day! I did so much stuff, and my brain is about to explode. You know, right. like it is really hard, and even seven years in, I'm still learning things every day. Magic is always changing and evolving, and there's always something to learn. And even people who have been at Wizards forever, they're still learning things. They still have more to learn. Yeah. So they say that when you work at McDonald's, you never really want to eat at McDonald's again. So now that you know how things are made inside the factory, does this change your enjoyment or perception of magic in some way? And if so, how? All right. Um, it doesn't change my enjoyment. I still love magic. And um, I still love playing specifically i love drafting like every time there's a new set on arena i will draft a ton of it yeah um i do play less for sure you know um often i don't want to go to fnm you know um and my coworkers are always like hey it's time for lunch who wants to play commander and i'm just like please no i do not want to play commander <laughs> we just played commander you know, like they want to play with their own um, constructed decks that they built, like real commander decks, you know, not not playtest decks. Yeah. But I don't have any interest in playing commander during lunch. Like we just worked for like three hours. I want to eat lunch and like go for a right. walk or something, you know. Um, but like I still do really enjoy magic. Like I watch magic streams. I like watching like magic coverage. Um, I really enjoyed the last set championship, I think is what they're called now. Mm hmm. Um, and really enjoyed it, and I interact with Magic a lot. So, did it decrease my enjoyment? Not really. I do play a lot less, though. Uh, but as for my perception, like, I would say that it changed a decent amount. Um, it's hard to look at a Magic card and not think about it, like, critically, you know? And, uh, and, and when I am, like, interacting with the player base or reading their feedback, reading their tweets and Reddit posts and all that, it's always through that lens now. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it's always... I always think of it about it like, are they going to like these cards? Like, oh, preview season, are they going to like them? I have to read everything, you know? Whereas before, it would be like, preview season, I can't wait to see what new sweet cards I can play. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like super different now, you know? Like, yeah. like, I read LSV's set reviews, and I'm just looking to see, like, what did he think of everything? And did did he evaluate the cards the same way that we did so yeah i think about it really differently i don't know if that's good or bad it, it just is right and now now you're the youtuber reading the youtube comments with every uh video that you release uh, or the mm -hmm. magic equivalent of that and just trying to take it all in and uh you just reminded me of a story actually so i visited back when i was living in vancouver canada i had friends who worked for ea electronic arts you know they make all the uh sports games and a heck of a lot of things. I think Need for Speed and a whole bunch of a huge studio, right? You know, they make video games for a living. And I visited them. And guess what people were doing during lunch hour? Oh, I hope they weren't playing video games. Everybody was like reading a book or playing analog card games. It's just like anything but video games. So you just, I think it's the same thing. It's like you need to get your brain to enjoy different things. So it's not like if you if you've been testing a game for eight hours a day, I don't think you really want to be playing a video game in your downtime. Right. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I don't really understand why my coworkers always want to play commander during lunch. You know, it's like, you, need to, <laughs> you know, turn off for a minute so we can be refreshed 
for yes. after lunch. Yes. You know? Yeah. I mean, they're just, uh, I, I thought you were hardcore, but I guess they must be more hardcore than, than you are. So, well, they're probably still new, like, like a year from now, I doubt mm. they'll do that. Like when I was new, I went to FNM. I went to the pre-release, like I did it all. Like when I was new to wizards, yeah. you know, I still wanted to do everything, you know, and I, and I thought it was awesome. I was like, yes, I'm at a pre-release and I work at wizards and people are going to like come up to me and ask me questions. It's going to be awesome. And it was awesome. <laughs> But after a while, it started to be less awesome because, like, it's just a lot, you know? Like, you can never turn off magic, you know, because you have your eight-plus hours of work, then you have your articles and videos and streams and Reddit posts and stuff that, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to read them, but you should read them. Or, like, you know, you need to keep up with what people are saying, you know? So it's really yeah. hard to, like, turn it off. So, so now when, when there's a pre-release... That's actually relevant to your job is like analyzing the the community feedback, whereas you playing FNM is not strictly required, right? That's what it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And when I'm at work, I'm just really like on all day and my brain is just like really on and I have to just be, you know, on top of things and focused. And if I go to FNM or something, I also have to be that way. And I really like need time to, you know, turn things off and decompress and relax and stuff but if i'm at fnm people are gonna come up to me and say hi and ask me questions and talk about magic and um and i do like doing that sometimes don't get me wrong but i don't want to do that every week yeah yeah like i have to be in the mode to do that like i will be going to command fest bellevue um where i will be in the wizards employee role where i'm going to expect people to come up to me and talk to me about magic and that kind of thing and yes i'm you know i volunteered to do that i'm going to do that it's going to be great and it's always a really a lot of fun, but it's just a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's a marathon. You have to pace yourself, it sounds like. Like, you know, you've learned over the years, right? Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. Can't go to FNM every week and, uh, and no commander during lunch. <laughs> I love it. So just switching gears a little bit, who would you say are your mentors at Wizards? Like, who are the people that made you better at what you do? Okay, uh, there's a, I have a lot of mentors at Wizards, actually. So I'll start by talking about who were my official mentors, and then I'll go into who were people that I was just around that uh, mentored me indirectly. So for official mentors, two of them that I want to call out are Mark Gottlieb, who has been at Wizards forever. He's a magic designer, um, and he was actually my manager for my second contract at Wizards. So like, you know, I had just come back to Wizards after not being there. Uh, you know, I was there a year, then I left, then I came back. So I didn't really know, like, where I fit in, really. And, like, Mark really helped me. Even if he didn't realize it, I actually learned a lot from him. And, I don't know, he just kind of made things click. And I was really able to, like, understand what my job was better and just, like, just be better at what I do. And he was just really good at just kind of explaining things. So he was... He was pretty awesome. Um, and then my next one is somebody who's not at Wizards anymore, but his name was Mark Globus. Um, he was... Actually, I think he was a former Great Designer Search contestant. So he got hired after Great Designer Search won. He didn't win or anything. I think he was in the... He was in the top where he was, like, in the articles and stuff. So he, he got the job as a result of that. And he was at Wizards for a very long time. And uh, he was my mentor during a time where I was, like kind of struggling, like not struggling, but like at a point where like I was doing my job, but not really improving. 
Um, so he helped me just kind of see things differently, just kind of helped me think about magic in different terms. Like, uh, I won't get into details because it's probably, I could probably just be here all day, but, um, but he just helped me think about magic differently. So that was pretty great. Um, and then other mentors I had who were like more indirect mentors were, uh, Adam Prozac, who like, we kind of had the same magic experience, like we're the same age and we like played PTQs at the same time. We, you know, we had a lot of magic milestones at the same time, right? Um, and he was at Wizards uh, a few years before me, but he was just somebody that like I could relate to. And he just explained things in a way that I could understand as well. So even though he was not my mentor, he was just somebody that I learned from anyway. And last one, maybe last one, I could probably think of more honestly, uh, but another one that I want to call out is Andrew Brown who is, uh, he's the technical lead of the play design team, competitive play design. Mm -hmm. And I'm the technical lead of casual play design. So we do the same job, but on different teams. But he's been doing it a lot longer than me. So he's somebody that I can just ask a bunch of questions to because he's just done it all before, you know? Mm -hmm. So he's been really valuable in being like, hey, I'm having this problem, please help, you know? And he's been really impressive because we actually got hired as full-time employees on the same day. And he just really, like, hit the ground running and, like, leveled up a lot and leveled up to uh, senior then principal designer which he is now and uh yeah he's doing great and he's helped me a lot so thanks to him i could probably go on all day honestly but <laughs> we can also stop here you have leveled up a lot too right i mean just just looking at it from the outside like you've got your promotions and things like that so i wouldn't i yeah, wouldn't for sure. uh, i wouldn't yeah, uh, shortchange yeah, yourself I certainly have but but andrew brown has leveled up really really quickly and probably more quickly than anybody that I've seen at Wizards, honestly. Okay. His name keeps coming up when I ask people about people that have influenced them greatly at oh, Wizards. Cool. And another one is, of course, Adam Prozac, which you mentioned. It seems like everybody mentioned Adam Prozac having a positive impact on them. So I, I feel like whoever is Adam and Andrew's managers, they should just make sure they keep doing what they do because yeah. like, it's just they they it just seems like there's names that always come up and it's just it's not a coincidence at this point yeah definitely not and like their managers are also people who i really look up to as well but they've never been my managers and like honestly i wish i could work with them more but like it's tough when they're a level above you you know in the hierarchy so like aaron forsyth um, he's oh, yeah. somebody who like, I would like to work with more, but I don't get the opportunity to very often. And he's not my manager, you know, right. um, but he is a manager of other people. Um, and you know, sometimes we get to draft together and sometimes he gives feedback on something that I did or whatever. And, and it's great, but it's not that often, you know, and, and if it was more often then maybe I'd be better at my job. Who knows? <laughs> right on. So, uh, do you have any specific stories that would be interesting to share, like either as a kind of a war room scenario or fun stories or level up stories? Like, I know it's very open ended, but just anything that comes to mind. One thing to keep in mind is we work really, really far in advance. So um, a lot of this is ancient history at this point. Uh, but one story that I thought was like a really fun design story and like something that I'm proud of is the card Tovalar from Midnight Hunt. Um, so this card is it's a werewolf legendary creature that was aimed at Commander. And 
Uh, the last time we did this was Eldritch Moon with uh, a legendary werewolf that just was kind of crappy. Like, nobody wanted to play that in Commander, which is kind of terrible, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. Um, but yeah, it was just like, it was a legendary rare werewolf, so we were like, great. This is what the players wanted. They wanted this legendary werewolf for this werewolf deck. But no, it turns out they actually wanted something that was that could actually pilot a werewolf deck, like something tribal and also something stronger, you know? Um, so I wanted to make sure this one was the right card and, like, was what they asked for, you know? So we wanted to make sure that it was a werewolf tribal card that played well in the commander deck. So um, we ended up building a werewolf commander tribal deck to, like, and we just incorporated it into our Midnight Hunt commander playtest um, decks, um, and played it, and then figured out, okay, I know what to do with Tovalar, and designed the card that I thought would be the be a good fit for the deck. You know, so what was figured out what was the most important things to make this commander deck work, um, and one was card draw because uh, no offense to the werewolves, but a lot of them are kind of like draft chaff; they're not that strong. So you need to draw cards to like make your deck perform better when your card quality is low. Right. Mm -hmm. So card draw was important. And also werewolves don't function well in commander, like the werewolf mechanic, like asking every player to not play a spell on their turn is just not going to happen. So the other thing that was important was that um, the werewolves had a way to transform outside of the normal means. Mm -hmm. So we put that on there as well. And that's Tovalar. So it worked, right? I think it worked. I, th it. I think the players were happy about it. Like, I got positive comments about it, so I think it worked. Just make the cards more powerful and it, and it works? Or it, were there other things about it in particular? Well, it was mostly just, like, getting the werewolf deck to function and, like, making sure the werewolf made the deck function. Because werewolf decks are not that functional in Commander just because of the, like, how the mechanic, the werewolf mechanic operates, you know? Yeah, yeah. You want to avoid it being a hundred card draft shaft deck, so you gotta prime it or load it with some things. I, that's not design terminology, but it's just that that makes sense. That makes sense. Other stories at all that are design related? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, yeah. Like there's lots of design related stories. They may or may not be interesting. I'm not really sure. What What's a but... design story that maybe you learn from? Kind of like the first version of that werewolf, right? It didn't quite land. But were there things that didn't quite land, and you? you or maybe the team learn from that yeah sure um yeah like we can talk about companion for for a few minutes <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so icoria that was uh that was a tough one um, that was there was a yeah. lot of a lot of challenging mechanics in that set right and we spent a lot of time working on companion and we spent a lot of time working on mutate and we spent a lot of time working on everything else there was just a lot going on um and uh we spent a lot of time working on companion we were mostly happy with companion and then we kind of put companion aside and started working on mutate and mutate was actually like a huge challenge for us um and it's funny because players may be like what do you mean it was a challenge like nobody plays it in standard like it was not really it was fine and limited, but like it didn't really hit. No, I understand in, what you mean. It's the challenge to understand the mechanic, to apply it. Like even as a player, it, it was challenging. I have to say. So. Yeah. Um, and like 
it was really challenging to work on and there were tons of rules complications, you know? So we had to like, we were constantly asking questions to the poor rules manager. Like I had, I was messaging him like constantly, hey, mm. how does this interaction work? You know, and it just kept coming up and uh, and also like the mechanic of mutate is like very powerful and also like the triggers are exponential. So like the more mutate cards you have on the stack, the like the more triggers you get, right? Because each one triggers for each time it was mutated and, and that kind of thing. And it was just really powerful and really hard to balance. And we spent a little too much time than we should have on it because, you know, in, in hindsight, like we should have spent less time on it and more on Companion, of course, because when the set came out, um, Mutate was not very powerful and standard and Companion was far too powerful and standard, you know? So, um... Mainly what we learned is uh, putting two challenging mechanics in a set was not really the way to go. And like we should be more careful with like what mechanics we choose from the set. And secondly, what we learned was uh, have a play design member be involved sooner um, to just like give the lead and the team like more advice on, you know, what, what mechanics are promising um, and like what is easy to balance in standard, what is hard to balance in standard and like how much... Uh, time will play design have to sink into these mechanics to get them to a good spot and clearly with companion we didn't do that like we should have spent a lot more time than we had on it is there something that the wizard's design hive mind can just make sure it carries forward like you know whatever the team learned from Ikoria, in theory it would be great if those learnings were applied to all sets going forward but of course it's it's very hard because you have different people and different teams and different dynamics. And uh, having worked at companies myself, I understand that. But are, are there like certain safeguards or things that would make that more manageable over time? Yeah, well, first of all, we do apply what we learned from past sets to future sets. Um, but it is hard because a lot of the job is tribal knowledge. So like I know the mistakes with Ikoria and people who were there at the time. And I can tell new people but what happens if I am suddenly not there anymore and there's nobody to tell those stories, you know, then they'll never know, really. So uh, so it's it's kind of tough, you know, and like we we do carry over the knowledge. So like we totally learned our mistakes about um, about what mechanics are challenging, what mechanics are not as challenging and make sure that we're mindful if there's a set and we're like, oh, hey, there's this set is loaded with challenging mechanics and it'll take us a lot more time than we have to work on it, then, you know, we can adjust at that point. Got it. That's something that, this is not a question, but I, I, it's just a comment. Like I, I find people always have this sort of weird thing where they judge things in a vacuum and they don't even take into account the, the dynamics of the org or the company or how things actually work in real life. So I think people give, I think it's easier to like judge something that you're not in because it's just very easy to be a it's kind of like you watch a movie and you're like yeah this movie sucked right there's no there's not really anything much deeper than that a lot of the time it's just like what were they thinking this movie sucked uh and, and i'm not trying to imply anything about magic here For i'm sure. just saying that in general it's easy to criticize without knowing how the sausage is made in the sausage sausage factory and i think that's also why like people who are at wizards for a longer time they are valuable because they have that built-in experience and uh having said that like there's also this sort of 
incentive to just make cool, powerful cards. So of course, like you could have every set be uh what's the what's the best example? Like Mercadian masks. masks or Ixalan are, are is a more recent example. Yeah, but I mean at, at some point you have to it's it's a balance, right? So I, I guess there's no question there, it's just a comment. Yeah, we serve a lot of players. We want to make cool, exciting cards. And also, Magic is a huge game. Like, we want our sets to matter, you know? Like, we don't want to make an Ixalan where, like, you know, it's a super weak set that um, might not affect Standard or, like, doesn't have enough exciting cards. Or a Mercadian Mass, which is... I don't even know the words for Mercadian Mass. It was just... Let's just say, not a powerful Magic set, you know? Uh, we don't want to make those sets. Like, we want to make exciting cards, like, and we have a lot of players to keep in mind, not just competitive standard players. Like, we want to make cool casual cards, you know? And, like, Companion was kind of where we got a little bit lost, where it had a lot of goals, and it's really hard to achieve every goal, you know? So, like, its goals were be cool in Commander, be exciting for casual be exciting for limited, be exciting in standard. Like, you know, if if you make every card exciting for every format, like something is going to go wrong there for sure. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think to your credit or to the team's credit, like you got it mostly right. So, I mean, that's something to uh, to uh, to pat your back on, right? So I guess there's a question here before we go on to another domain, which is, Overall, how would you describe your Wizards experience and kind of like hindsight is 2020, but like looking back on it, how do you feel about everything? Like, do you, do you feel content with the kind of legacy you've created in terms of cards that you've touched? How, how do you feel overall? Um, yeah, that's a tough question because uh, honestly, uh, when sets like Eldraine and Theros and Ikori were coming out, like our team morale was like not very high because... Um, there were a lot of mistakes. Um, also, I, I don't think a lot of players realize this, but when we were working on those sets, our team was very new. Um, even though the quote-unquote development team or the balance people have been around, um, the team as as a team working together was was very new. Um, so we were still learning a lot, and um, and yeah, like our mistakes have shown. You know, like um, we worked on. Uh, guilds of ravnica and it was good like people were pretty happy with it and people were like yes this team is great keep it up and then you know we try to push things a little bit and um if we miss on something then things can get really out of hand and that's kind of what eldraine was we learned a lot from working on guilds of ravnica and we learned a lot working on eldraine and like you know all the sets in between and we looked at what our mistakes were and looked on where we could have done better so even though, like, during those sets, uh, we were not really happy with what we did, I think the team has gotten a lot better over time. Like, like the team works better together. The team has better process. Um, so now um, I think the team is, like, really solid and good communication and um, just does a really great job. So, like, I'm really happy with, like, where the team has come. So... Um, so sets after Ikoria, like, you know, uh, let's see, there was Kamigawa. I think that was, like, a, a really good set for us. Uh, Streets of Nukapena was pretty good. Um, yeah, like, there were highs and lows, like, highs meaning 
cards that were maybe too powerful and lows meaning cards that were, you know, sets that we were a little bit more conservative on because maybe we overcompensated from Eldraine, right? Like Strixhaven was one that that we maybe have overcompensated on and like we're a little bit too conservative on AFR as well. But uh, the team was finding a balance over time. And like, I think the team has done a great job at finding that balance. So I'm looking forward to like what the team does. I'm not even on the team anymore. <laughs> the last set I worked on was Brothers War with that team. Mm. So it's interesting to me because you're very honest. I mean, I've said that already, but even using a term like mistakes, of course, they can be mistakes after the fact and things like that. So on a scale of one to 10, how self-critical are you of yourself, basically? And 10 is I'm very self-critical, right? 10 would be you're the most self-critical person in the state (laughs) or in your area. And one would be just you're the complete opposite. Okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question, like especially how it came about because of how critical I was of mistakes. But I am actually very critical of myself. Um, Yeah, I'm always looking to self-improve and just do better at things that I like to do. And I... When I ask people for feedback, I want the most critical feedback ever because, like, I can take it. And if you give me, like, critical, harsh feedback, I, I will learn from it and do better, you know? Yeah. So on a scale, maybe, like, an 8 or 9, probably not 10. That's a bit extreme. Yeah. But, like, probably, like, 8 or so, but, like, pretty high, I think. Yeah. And I'm sorry if that segue was a little bit awkward, but I just want to say that I feel like you and I speak kind of a, a similar language because I'm also very self-critical when I ask people to give me feedback in a work setting, I will just tell them like, don't sugarcoat this because I want to learn from this. Like, you know, some people tell people like, give me feedback and they don't actually care or they don't internalize it. But me, I, I want you to give me like, I don't care about the good news. Like, just just tell me like what I need to do to improve basically. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I love that. But there are other people out there who are on the other side of the spectrum who hate that, you know, like they will get the critical feedback and then just, I don't know, maybe go cry for an hour or something, you know? So it's it can be really tough like like I'm not a manager so I don't have to deal with that kind of situation but like I feel for the managers who have to learn um the ins and outs of the people that are reporting to them like which person wants to hear what types of feedback you know but I made it very clear to my manager I'm like listen you have to just tell me how it is just be critical be harsh I can take it I just need to to hear everything you know so like I don't want any of that like compliment sandwich or whatever like yeah yeah like a compliment and then bad and then a compliment (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. like if you want to say something good fine but i really want to hear the bad stuff like that's super important is that how you were as a player when you were coming up and trying to do well at the pro tour and being competitive at that stage in your life Hmm. uh that's a really interesting question that i never really thought about but i don't think hmm, i never thought about that like I wouldn't want somebody to give critical feedback about my gameplay I often, um, unless I was like ready to hear it, you know, especially like in the moment, especially when I was younger. So I think it's something that I just wanted over time, you know? I'm not really sure why. Maybe it was because I wasn't ready to improve at the time, you know? Like, especially like when players are newer and or younger, right? Um, a lot of the times that like they want to justify their plays, it's like, hey, you would have won if you've done this. And it's like, no, no, that's not why. It's because of this, you know? So, um, and newer players often do that. Like, they just don't want to hear what 
they could have done better unless they are actually like looking to improve and uh you have to like hit a level to to be there you know and and i like thinking yeah. back to when i was a player when i was a ptq level player i was not at that level and then as i grew as a player as as more of a pro tour level player that's all i wanted to hear you know so i i think it really was i don't know if it was like maturity like just growing as a person um but yeah like yeah, I, I definitely wasn't ready for it back then. Like, I remember just, like, being like, no, don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. You're wrong, you know. Um, but then then I wasn't like that, you know. And uh, definitely like uh, the way I am now as opposed to back then for sure, though. Okay, but going from PTQ to PT level, was there something that happened? Was there Was it just maybe maturity or was it just like you realize you hit some sort of ceiling i guess we're now we're getting into kind of like the mindset yeah. at that time yep um so one thing that i remember distinctly was uh that helped me realize that i wasn't a good player and needed to hear the feedback was interacting with other players who knew who like said who knew that they were bad players and actively said i'm a bad player and i want to hear all the improvement advice that i can get you know Interacting with those players more definitely helped. Um, but when I was like a younger PTQ level player, the majority of the people I played with were not like that. They thought they were the best players ever. They were just going to go win the PTQ. If they lost, they got unlucky. It was mm -hmm. never about their bad plays or anything. And um, and I, like one thing that I remember distinctly was uh, when I started getting more into Magic Online and I joined a Magic Online clan that was just all like players who were looking to qualify for the Pro Tour or just do well in Magic, you know? And, like, their mindset was just totally different than other people I interacted with. And, like, as I played Magic with them on Magic Online, like, they were talking about their plays, you know? They were like, they were like, oh, in this situation, I should have done this, you know? And, like, that just was a big level-up moment for me. Like, before, we wouldn't talk about plays. We would just kind of play and think we were good, yeah. even though we weren't good. Yeah. Or you had feedback or validation because you were winning. So it was like, yeah, what's what's wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. But like, I don't know, maybe the player wins a lot at the store level and they think they're really good and they go to the PTQ and they don't win. And they're just like, I just got unlucky because I usually win. You know, like that that's a, a pretty common mindset for that level of player, I think. So what do you think separates the the PT level players from the PT Q level players or maybe the grinders because you, you kind of touched on it which is like you're you're always analyzing things at a very micro level is there are there other things that you have seen either in yourself or in others yeah like this might sound a little bit harsh but like magic players are not good like they are usually not very strong magic players you you're know? more likely to be bad than good sure yes yes you are magic is a hard game and there's a lot of variance and you're not going to win a lot and you are probably bad at making misplays. And once you realize that, then you can understand, you can like actually look for what the misplays are and, you know, notice like trends and like figure out how to improve that kind of thing. You mentioned this chat group, but are there any specific people that had a big influence on you just in terms of your level up as a magic player in any stage of your magic career? That's a good question. Uh, I'd have to really go back because like, yeah, there was the Magic Online clan. Um, and the name of the clan was OSIP Drives Me to School. And they were just like a bunch of like, you know, like younger, probably like mid-20s or so, uh, which was at the time that was my age as well. Um, uh, 
I guess, GP-level players. Like, they would go to GPs and, like, primarily what they w- would do is play Magic Online and play in the PTQs and often win them. And, like, they would get to the Pro Tour that way. And a lot of them were, were younger as, as well, I think. Um, I kind of feel like the names of the players people will not even remember because this was a very long time ago. This was probably in the mid-2000s. Um, That's okay. You can give me the deep cut. Oh, the deep cut of, of the players' names. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so one, actually, the person who got me into the clan was a local player to me. He lived in Connecticut, and I lived in Rhode Island, and his name was uh, David Howard, and he went by the name Smokes McCloaks on Magic Online. So at the time, I think he was, like, a pretty well-known Magic Online grinder. Um, so, like, everybody knew who Smokes McCloaks was, you know? But, um, but to me, he was just, like... My friend Dave, who I called Smokey, like that was his nickname, and uh, we would chat a lot on like AOL Instant Messenger at the time, uh, just about stuff, magic, um, and we also went to uh, a pro tour together, um, Kuala Lumpur 2007, 8, uh, 7 or 8, uh, but yeah, we went to that pro tour together, but he was like the main person who I would talk to about magic stuff, and he got me into the clan, I would have not gotten in Otherwise, because it was a very, like, exclusive group of, like, you had to be a good player to get into the clan. He was like, no, no, no. No, trust me. She's good. She should be in the clan. So I, so that, that was who I owe it to, I think. Yeah. So let's see if anybody remembers him. Awesome. He gave you your shot. <laughs> what about Raphael Levy? I mean, he's a Hall of Fame player, uh, you know, French player. And uh, as I understand, you have a strong friendship with him that still last to this day so maybe tell me about how that relationship developed as a kind of a professional relationship and as partners in trying to get better at magic yeah uh so my friendship with Raphael levy developed like much later in my magic career right sure. so yeah so we're jumping way ahead online yeah. clan, i uh-huh. talked about that was like in the 2006 to 8 range um and i didn't become friends with Raphael levy until i want to say maybe 2011 or 12 or so um okay. so much later um, so this was during a time in my life where, uh, I was playing a lot of magic, like basically like to make a long story very short, I decided to quit my job because I was sick of working and I needed a break. Like I was like very burned out. So I needed a break from my job and from life. And I figured, well, now that I'm not doing anything and I have the money, I'm just going to go play in all these GPs for fun because I love magic, you know? Um, So I met Raphael Levy at one of those GPs, probably. Um, And I remember the person who I was dating at the time, we were going to all these events together, and uh, he was really interested in meeting Magic Pros and networking and just becoming a good Magic player. And uh, so he he would, like, be approaching all of these players where I was more, like, very shy and I didn't really want to... Not that I didn't want to talk to anybody, I just didn't really know how to. But he would be very, like... He was very extrovert, and he would just go around to them and be like, hey, let's be buds, you know? Um, so I remember this one GP, um, Raph posted on Twitter or something, hey, does anybody have a hotel room for this GP? And the person I was dating at the time was like, we should ask him to stay with us. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, I guess that's fine. I mean, uh, he's probably a nice guy, and we can save money, so seems like a win. So, so like, he asked him, he said yes so we roomed together and uh so that's kind of like how we like met and got to like chatting and stuff and turns out like raf and i had a lot in common um 
we're the same age, so, like, we grew up playing the same video games, which that's the thing that we connected with the most. Um, just, like, old-school uh, Super Nintendo um, JRPGs. We, like, played a lot of those. So we would just, like, be talking about those in the hotel room and stuff. Um, so he was, like, just a really easy person to talk to and be friends with, so we started being friends, and um, eventually I was on his Pro Tour team as well when I qualified, and we would test events together. And, uh, yeah, we would also room together a lot as well. And he was, like, a great roommate because he didn't snore. And he was just so easy to get That's along critical. with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, very important for me. I'm a really light sleeper, so I needed somebody who didn't snore. So so he was the ideal roommate for me. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's the full story. Or at least most of it. Kind of a tangent, but what JRPGs? Was it Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy? What was it? Both of those, all of them. Um, but yeah, Final Fantasy, um, in the US, they were called Final Fantasy 2 and 3. But right. what they're actually called are Final Fantasy 4 and 6. So like, yes. so those games, Chrono Trigger was a big one. Super Mario RPG, probably Secret of Mana. But you know, the uh, mid-90s. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the golden age right there. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's always good to relate to someone on a, on that sort of non-magic level and being the exact same age and kind of those coincidences. And as I understand it, you also once hosted players at your house or your family's house for yeah, PT testing. Yeah, it was testing. my parents' house, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so tell me about that. Any, any stories from that you can remember? I guess Raph was part of that, right? Yeah, for sure. So So how it started was... Um, the team wanted to get together for the Pro Tour, which was in Portland, Oregon, a few weeks before. But I wanted to play in GP Worcester, Massachusetts, which is uh, a short drive from my parents' house. So I was like, it's a hometown GP. I have to play in it. I can't not play in the hometown GP. So I really wanted to play. But the team was not really too keen on playing because they really wanted to fly from Europe to the West Coast, stay there, test, and then play in the PT. Um, so then I don't remember whose idea it was. It might've been mine. I, who even knows, but I was like, wait a minute, what if we just all stay at my parents' house and then we can play the GP and then we can just fly over to Portland afterwards. And like my parents were on board with it and everybody else was on board with it. So we planned it out and like they ended up staying at my parents' house for a week while we play tested for the pro tour. And then we played in the GP. Um, so yeah, it was pretty wild. Like, uh, my mom loves hosting so she was very much on board with like all these people are in my house i'm gonna just like make a ton of food and just give everybody food for a week you know and she was just very like accommodating and made sure everybody had enough like pillows and blankets and and stuff like that um as for a funny story so um the funniest story from that time was like when everybody was flying in they were flying into the providence airport and uh one of the people uh yol larson his flight was delayed and since he was uh he didn't have cell phone data we had no idea how to get in touch with him so we just had no idea what was going on um he just never showed up like we were going to pick him up but we had no way of getting in contact with him we didn't know when his flight was going to land or whatever so you know time went on like and we didn't hear from him we just didn't know what was up and then finally at one in the morning we get a knock on the door and he showed up at, at the house and we were just like, how did you know how to find the house? And like, uh, it turned out like he knew where, what bus stop to get off of. And he just kind of walked around kind of aimlessly at like midnight. Um, 
and he like what, knocked just knock on, on every door doors, or what until someone and, answered like, and like, yeah he just knocked on people's doors and then finally like he saw like a sign that said like the detora household he's like yes <laughs> i found the house so he just got super lucky he just found the right house at like one in the morning never say that magic players are not resourceful am i right yeah like i was really like impressed that he was able to just like take public transportation i'm assuming he had the address so he just knew like he had some idea of where he was going you know but you know he was international he like probably didn't have the best idea and didn't have cell phone data but like he made it he just like i don't even know if there was uber back then there might have been but he definitely did not take an uber he took a bus or something yeah so so yeah it was crazy but he made it that's wild because like a decade ago i can just imagine it was an order of magnitude harder to find a place really like it just just uh especially without data that's that's uh yeah for sure that's remarkable like they should probably write that on his uh list of magic that's achievements. actually a really big accomplishment like if if anybody is listening or if he's listening and like you know and, and you hear this that is actually a huge accomplishment should go on your resumes and magic <laughs> accomplishment yeah like yeah speaking of impressive the other thing that Raph told me was that he was very impressed how much your mom, I think it was your mother, knew about him. Like when he showed mm -hmm. up at the house, he <laughs> was like, it sounds like your family actually follows Magic the Gathering or maybe just you told them stuff. But like, tell um, me about that too. Like just, yeah. just them being your, your family being like really, really into it as well. Yeah. So let me start by saying that like for pretty much my entire Magic life, my parents didn't really know Magic at all. And uh, they didn't understand, they didn't really want to understand, and they just kind of, they didn't really understand what I was doing or, and, like, why I was choosing to play Magic over, like, working a job or whatever. Um, but once I had the Pro Tour Top 8, that was kind of whatever, when that changed. Um, like, I was like, hey, Dad, check this out. My face is on this website, you know? And then my dad was like, wow, that is actually, like, really cool. I need to look into this. So my dad just, like, researched Magic and the Pro Tour, and he just learned about everything. Like, he knew everybody's name. He knew who all the top pros were. When I had a feature match, he knew who my opponent was, you know? So he just did all this research and just, like, knew everything. So, like, he did know a lot about Raph already because he did all this research. I'm not sure if my mom did. I don't know. Okay. She probably knew whatever my dad told her. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, information flows uh, in the household, I'm sure. Wow, that is... Uh... That is that is really cool. And I, I want to also switch gears. I want to ask you about Pump It Up because this okay. is something that you have been involved in. So just full disclosure, I never play Pump It Up. I was always more of a DDR person or guy. Uh, it helped me a lot. I lost a lot of weight in high school because of the home version of that game. Just these dancing simulator games that are very excellent for exercise and other things too. But tell me about how you started playing Pump It Up and uh, how'd you go from playing to, to streaming? Yeah, sure. So I've been playing Pump It Up and just dance games for actually a very long time, like probably since my early 20s or so. Um, and I remember um, we have a, a an arcade called Dave & Buster's, which is like a chain of arcades like around the U.S. where it's just like big arcades. They have like so they have lots of new uh, arcade games like they have like the very, newest, very like, modern like offerings. Yeah, basically. like ticket games like, you know, spend a lot of money, win a prize and, and stuff. Um uh, like, Guitar Hero is probably one they had. Uh, like, a lot of, like, very active games, you know? Like, you go 
sit inside a box and it's like very like uh, immersive, you know, like mm-hmm. those kind of video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember I enjoyed going there um, when I was like 21 or older because you had to be 21 to even go there because they served alcohol. So you couldn't go right. if you were a kid unless you were with a parent. So um, once I turned 21, um, I would go there quite a lot because I thought that, that place was super fun. And uh, one of the games they had there was Pump It Up. And I didn't really know very much about it, but I remember I watched a person play and I just couldn't stop watching. I was like, wow, this is the You were just entranced or something? Or what? Pretty much. I was like, well, this person is just jumping around on this pad, on this metal pad, and it's a game. I need to try this. This looks awesome. You know? Right. So I tried it. I was like probably very bad, but like I thought it was really fun and I kept wanting to try. Um, and also like the friend that I used to go with, like she was also, she got into it as well. So we would just go to Dave and Buster's every week and play pump it up. And it was just really fun. And honestly, we were not good. Um, especially like if you look at like people who are very good at the game today, like it's a much different game now, but back then, like we were like pretty medium at the game, but I just thought it was really fun. And it was also good exercise, which didn't hurt either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So we would do that. Like, we probably did that for, I don't know, a year or two, maybe longer. Don't really remember. Uh, but then she ended up moving away to, uh, to another state, so I no longer had anybody to play with. So um, at that point, I needed to find out how to play by myself. And I didn't want to go to Dave & Buster's alone because I didn't want people to, like, watch me or anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So at that point, I got into, like, the console dance games, like DDR for PlayStation Um, and there was a pump it up console video game that I had to like buy from Korea, which was kind of weird because like it was a lot harder to buy things internationally back then, you know, but I remember like I found the game on some Korean website and, uh, it was for PS2 and I bought it. So I would, you know, play with the foam mats at home for a while. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then I just kind of put it down for a while because I got too busy and, it's really hard to play on those foam mats anyway. Like they're yeah, you, low they quality. keep moving around. You gotta like yeah. uh, when I was doing it at home for DDR, I had to like tape it to a, a wooden board because of how it. Yeah, but then you, you do that, out, it also at, damages at it because room. you're like you're like it also wears on it. But uh, that's that's a different thing. So. Yeah, like yeah, like the foam mats are like you start at one end of the room, and by the time the song's over, you're all the way on the other end of the room. Like that, that was like, that's kind of how it was. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah so I, I put the game down for a while, um, and didn't play for like many years. Um, and then when I moved out here to Seattle, uh, we have an arcade called Round One, which is very similar to a Dave and Buster's, just a different brand. Like Round One, they have them in Japan as well. And it's just like modern video games, like gigantic Japanese ticket machine games. And uh, mm-hmm. they have like karaoke rooms and mm-hmm. uh, gigantic, huge entertainment place. Oh, and also a bowling alley, too. I, I think it's mainly a bowling alley. They just happen to have video games as well. Right. So I was there one day and uh, I saw Pump It Up and I was like, oh, I used to really like this game. This game's cool. I used to have a lot of fun playing, but I can't possibly play again. Like, you know, I'm like way out of shape. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's I used to do that a long time. That was ago. in the I past. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't play again. And, you know, uh, maybe some time went by and uh, whenever I went to round one for like either a work. She is just always there. Yeah, it was yeah. just always there just staring at, at me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, pump it up. Yep, yep. I used to play. Mm-hmm. One day I finally said, all right, I'm going to play just for the hell of it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? And then I played for a little bit and I was like, oh, yeah, this game's fun. I really like this game, actually. 
And then I started going like every week <laughs> again, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I also like met some friends who played as well. It was, it was like kind of a weird coincidence, but like coworker had a friend who played magic. She also happened to play dance games Mm-hmm. Um, that person had a friend as well who played dance games and magic. Um, me and that person are now roommates. So mm-hmm. like just a weird, like, uh, just yeah. a weird life coincidence that I just happened to meet people yeah, who played as well through magic, of, of course. Yeah. Six yeah. degrees of, uh, pump it up. Not, not Kevin Bacon, but pump it up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and all thanks to magic too, I'll say, because like we are connected through magic as well, but like mm-hmm. also they happen to play dance games. Um, and they played them a lot more seriously than me, but, like, because of them, I got a little bit more serious. But don't get me wrong, I'm not a serious player. I'm very casual. I like to play for exercise. Like, I just, Oh, I was going to ask you. So yeah, you're like, not, like, hyper-competitive. It's a great workout. I'm okay. not hyper-competitive. I'm very casual, but I do play a lot. Um, mm. So much that I bought my own um, machine in 2019. So, like, I, I own a Pump It Up now in my garage because wow. I like playing so much. But, okay. like, if you, like... Think about it, like, in these terms. I could go to the arcade, which, you know, I have to drive to, and I have to spend money on the game. And if I'm doing that once or twice a week, you know, there, it's time-consuming and, and it costs money. I might as well just buy my own, right? So that was the justification for buying my own, and now I can just play whatever I want. Yeah, So that's, and, yeah, absolutely. And how did I get into streaming? Um, yeah, how well, did you get into streaming? Yeah, so the roommate streams. Uh, he had been streaming... Uh, he owned his own DDR for a few years, and he streamed um, his DDR. And then when he moved in to our place, uh, and we had the Pump It Up machine now, he was like, well, we might as well just stream this as well. So he set up a streaming setup, um, which I didn't really have anything to do with. It was more him. So we just started streaming together um, it, on his account. So if people out there like dance games, um, you can go follow him. I can Maybe you can put his name in the show notes or something but yeah shout him out what's the what's the channel name yeah uh twitch.tv slash c x x x x 100 so c 4 x is 100 is his uh channel name c and he 4 streams x is ddr yeah. yeah he streams ddr once a week usually on thursdays and um occasionally he'll stream at an additional time each week and i may join him for that if it's on a weekend and it's usually pump it up excellent wow i didn't know about your whole history with the dance games this is it's it's quite it's it's a part of your life i mean and also i i i wish i could own a dance game in my garage as well if i had a garage but it's like you must get a lot of compliments when people see that machine like where you live because it's like man it's cool yeah, it's, like, it's pretty like novel like not many people own something like this right it's like yeah. you have to a, be a hardcore enough player to You might own like $50,000 worth of magic cards, but it's still not as cool yeah, as like owning right, an arcade yeah. machine, right? Right, right. Yep. Yeah. And like you have to have a way to store the machine. Like you can't just have it in an apartment. You need a garage. Right. So when I moved into a house that had a garage, that was when I was like, oh, now I can actually get one of these now that I mm-hmm. have somewhere to put it, you know? Insider question though: Is it hard to maintain? Because I imagine for arcade, you have to you have to maintain, you have to like uh, rotate out the panels or like clean it. Like, how hard yeah. involved is that? Do um, you have to pay someone to do it, or you do it yourself? Uh, so, as a single user, like you know, it's only used by a small number of people. It's not that hard to maintain. For an arcade, I think it'll be very hard to maintain because it just gets so much more use, right? Oh, just um, wear and tear. Yeah, like 
yeah, wear and tear. Um, like, I clean the pads probably about once every six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't even need to do it that often either. You know, and like, I also do a just a quick wipe down after every use, which arcades don't do. Like, do they even clean arcade games? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but like, yeah. every time I use it when I'm done, I wipe it down. Because uh, it's right. pretty gross and sweaty, you know. Because like, yeah. you're, you're exercising, right? So yeah, yeah it's gonna yeah, get good. Yeah, well, some gross. people some people get the elliptical for the home. Some people get a pump it up machine. That's yeah. Exercising is yeah. boring, so you have to find fun ways to exercise if you want to, you know, be in shape, yeah. right? So you got to find the joy. Yeah. All right. Another question I have is not related to pump it up. Is women in MTG? What are your thoughts about this? And has it changed for you over? The years. So before you answer the question, I want to say that this is always a flawed question. It's kind of like, you know, what is it like to be X where you've been X all your life? But having said that, let's work with it. What are your thoughts about this? All right. So let me start kind of at the beginning because I had very different thoughts at the beginning than I do now. Right. Part so, of maturing. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like, I'm even a little bit embarrassed about how I thought back then. Like, uh, man, I was so ignorant back then but i was the only woman in in mtg for a lot of the time that i was playing i started playing magic in 97 and uh when i started playing magic in 97 so it was in high school so like the people in the play group were boys whatever i was used to that like i played video games i played sports i was kind of used to being the only girl so whatever didn't really think anything of it i started going to tournaments a few years later I was always the only girl, so it was very normal to me to be the only girl because it never happened, you know? Never saw any other girls in the room at, at, at the local game store magic tournaments. So I just assumed that it just wasn't something that girls did in the same way that girls didn't play football, you know? Um, it just wasn't for girls. Uh, I would I just assumed that, like, first the nerdiness, like, girls didn't want to be nerdy. And uh, just the style of, like, what I was doing, which is being competitive... Um, so I don't think this anymore. So I just want to preface this by saying, I do not think this, this is how I thought back then I was stupid. This is definitely not true, but I just thought that girls were just not interested in a competitive game like magic. And it was also just too nerdy for them. It just wasn't appealing to them. I thought it was, I like, I love magic. The thing that appealed to me about magic was not the high fantasy aspect. It was more of the competitive, like the gameplay like, I really enjoyed the game, and I was a very competitive person, so that was the thing that appealed to me. I couldn't really play sports anymore because, you know, when you're, like, out of high school, either you have to be a very, very good player to play, or, you know, you, you really can't anymore at that point, you know, because, like, you're kind of past your prime. But Magic was something that I could do at any time, so I thought it was a great game to play, and, and I loved it, And but it was the competitive thing that appealed to me, and I just assumed that it was not an appealing thing for women to play. So I rarely ever saw um, girls there at tournaments. And when I did, it was just like, I don't understand. How is this happening? Like, girls don't like magic. What's happening? You know? (laughs) Um, Then, you know, time goes by and, like, instead of there being only one girl at the game store, suddenly it's two, right? And I still thought it was super weird, but, like, I could tell that there were, at times, girls interested in playing, um, but still, like, rare enough, um, uh, and it wasn't until really, like, hmm, I don't know when, when I had a change of heart about this, but seeing things like podcasts created by women happening, 
like and a lot of them, you know, like uh, like shout outs to Good Luck High Five being one of them. But there were also like plenty of others out there at the time. When do you think this was like 2012 or so? Not totally sure the, the time frame, but like there were women players out there who wanted to like actually make content about magic. So clearly they like it in some way. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and then um, reading the Internet, I'm reading about stories about how women love magic, but they don't feel welcoming in game stores. And that's the reason why they're not going. And I never even thought about that before, you know? Like, it never occurred to me that a person wouldn't want to go to a game store. You know, it's, whatever, it's just a game store. It didn't really phase me. Um, then I realized, like, it was me who was the, the anomaly, right? Like, I was the person who was doing the strange thing that people didn't want to do, you know, going to the game store. Um, yeah, I didn't really think that it would just be an uncomfortable thing. But, like, thinking about it, I was like, yeah, I can actually see how that's super uncomfortable. Just thinking back, like, you know, I would be playing at the Saturday Standard Tournament and, like, my opponent would ask me out after the match and, you know, and I didn't really, like, think, like, oh, this could actually make somebody feel uncomfortable. But it totally did, and I just wanted to play Magic, so I went back anyway. And I didn't really consider that, like, another person would be like, oh, I'm never coming here again. But that would happen actually pretty frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's wired differently, right? So... Yeah. Uh, So one thing that, like, actually changed to, like, really make magic, women magic players feel more comfortable is, I think, Arena. Um, It makes the person anonymous, and they can get their magic fix without having to go to the game store, you know? And, like, that's not a knock against game stores. Like, game stores are, are great, and, like, that's where I found a lot of friends, and, like, my passion for magic grew at game stores. So, like, like, they're great, but, like, they can be unwelcoming at times, for sure. Um, so, like, I'm really glad that another thing exists where, like, a women player can go and be competitive and play and also play a lot and, you know, not have that uncomfortable feeling. Right on. I mean, speaking as someone with a different gender, it's just like, I, that's been a big problem all my life is just assume everybody's like me, right? Why can't you be more like, uh, why can't you be more like me? Like, and how self-critical I am. And, and like, if this is obvious to me, it should be obvious to you. Right. But it's just, uh, my whole life is basically a summation of like realizing that's not the case. And, uh, which is why I like doing the podcast and like talking to people, because that's just, uh, a a good way to figure that out slowly, (laughs) maybe too slow for some people, but yeah. Yeah. Like look at like the pro tour level, right? Like you don't see women playing on the pro tour level, because it was just so inaccessible for them because you have to play at the game store to like, that's like your on ramp to the pro tour, yeah. right? Like you play at the game store to learn about the GPs, to learn about the PTQs yeah. and that kind of thing, you know? And like, if you're not comfortable at the game store, you're not going to be comfortable at the PTQ level either, you know? So that's kind of like why the attendance was always just kind of low. Right. So yeah. it was really unfortunate. Yeah. Just, just really unfortunate. Like, that women didn't have the chance, like the same chances that that guys did about that. But, you know, that's that's not just with magic. That's with a lot of other things as well. Do you have any thoughts about like moving forward, how women can feel better about being in these spaces or environments? Um, I'm probably not the best person to talk to about how to make game stores better for women players, because like I said, my game store experience, even though like, I did have uncomfortable interactions. I still was very more than willing to go to game stores, right? 
So I think there are lots of other people out there who can speak to it way better than me, and I don't want to take that from them. Um, but, like, things like Arena, like like I said, like, I, I know I already said this, but, you know, just want to say it again, like, Arena, just the fact that you can just be an anonymous gamer and still qualify for the Pro Tour if that's what you want to do is is just, like, great. Absolutely. Yeah, what about, like, things from a design standpoint have is does, does this topic ever come up like i don't know like and how cards are made does this somehow have any impact on it or it's kind of a neutral thing um it's i wouldn't say that it inf- like it doesn't inform design decisions of like uh you know that the fact that magic is not often as accessible to women honestly uh but it is something that we talk about and like we certainly talk about it with people in other departments who where, like, that is more of their jobs, like the community teams or, like, the organized play teams, that kind of thing. Like, they do ask us for opinions about, like, how to make game stores or, you know, just magic more accessible, you know. But, like, I I cannot say that I've used it to inform design decisions or anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you have that in in your mind somewhere, I'm sure it's going to uh, influence how things are done. That's I think that's always a a good thing. So Uh, I want to add one more thing, though. Sure. Um, the casual play design team is mostly women. Um, we have three, hold on, let me count, including me, there are four women on the team. So we have a lot of women. Um, we have two males on the team. So our, we have uh, six people on the team, four women, two males. And the women on the team are extremely passionate about magic. And they all have different backgrounds. Like we have somebody from a competitive background, actually two, cause I didn't count myself. We have an additional person from a competitive background. We have a person from an extremely casual background. Um, we have somebody from um, neither one of them, like, you know, person who just played at a lot of, of game stores and played a mix of competitive and, and casual magic. So, yeah, it's, it's like, kind of surprising when you, when I, like, if you were to tell me when I started at Wizards, eventually you will be on a team that is mostly women. I don't even know if I would have believed you. Right. Yeah, it was just, like, so bizarre to me at the time. Like, I remember years ago, uh, there was, we had one of our managers, uh, a woman manager, she was like, my ultimate goal is to make a design team of all women. And I didn't tell her this, but my thought was, like, that's never happening. Mm. You know, because, like, my thought at the time was uh, a woman magic player needs to be given the tools to succeed at magic in order for them to work at wizards. And I didn't think that they had that at the time, but that is no longer true. They totally do have those tools. Thanks to mostly the internet, social media and arena, I think, but things are definitely a lot different back in like, you know, 2000 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Things are changing and in a, in a, in a positive way. So Melissa, what's the best place for people to find you on social? Or where you would like to be found on the internet? Oh, sure. Uh, so I am on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitter at Melissa DeTora, which is just at my name. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about wizards and life and self-criticality <laughs> and, <laughs> and pump it up. I really appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, yeah, very enjoyable. I like talking about that kind of stuff, too. So I, I think there were a lot of things we didn't get to, but maybe we can get to more stuff in the future. Yep. Yep. You got it. I, I am a big fan of uh, recurring appearances, so I hope that we can we can do that in the future. All right. Sounds great.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. To support the show, visit humansofmagic.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at humansofmagic, and you can also consider supporting us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.